John 5 says, After this there was a great feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is in Hebrew called Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water, and then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. And the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them and said, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And then they asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And Father, we humbly ask now, please be gracious to us, Lord. Help us to hear what the voice of God would say to us through the word of God this morning. We thank you for giving us the scriptures that you've inspired it and breathed it out by your spirit, that it's living and powerful. So make it that today, Lord. May it come to life to us and may it powerfully speak to us and every intent behind why you recorded this portion of scripture. May it speak directly and personally and individually to all of us in this place this morning. Bless your word and speak to us by your spirit's ministry. We ask in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated together. You know, one thing is true with Jesus and that is this, uh, that with Jesus, change is always possible. I think this is one of those passages in the Bible that reveals that truth probably more clearly than any other place in Scripture. That with Jesus, change is always possible. Let's look in verse 1 as we begin to look at this story together. It tells us that after this, that is the time Jesus had just spent in the area where he was in Cana, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So Jesus now we see travels back to the religious capital of Israel, which was Jerusalem in that day. He goes to where the temple was in order to celebrate, it tells us, one of the feasts of Israel, one of the feasts of the Jews. Uh, these were sort of the scheduled spiritual religious holidays that God had given to the Jews to observe in that day. They were times of rest and fellowship that were set aside for times of worship of God and remembering the works of God among them as a people. Now, we're not told here in the Bible exactly which one of these particular feasts this was that was being observed. Uh, it could perhaps have been one of those three mandatory feasts. Uh, Passover, we know, was one of them. Likely, probably not Passover, but this could have been Pentecost 
or this could have been the Feast of Tabernacles, or this also could have been one of the more what we would call minor feasts that Israel still observed, maybe like the Feast of Trumpets, but we're not told. One thing we do know for certain, because it is a feast day and they're there in Jerusalem, during the feast, the population of Jerusalem would swell incredibly, much like, as we said before, kind of how an assured community here, you know, a community uh, that typically is a lot smaller population in the summer, the population swells incredibly. This is what Jerusalem would do during the time of the feasts when all these visiting pilgrims would come from all over to spend a week or so there to worship God together. And Jesus, as a man honored the law of God. And we always see that as we study the scriptures, particularly how Jesus always was there faithfully in attendance whenever there was occasions of worship. Jesus, when people assembled together, Jesus went. Uh, again, I always remember that because sometimes people have pretty petty excuses for why they don't assemble to worship God. Uh, and I look and I say, wow, interesting. Jesus was God in the flesh. He had no issues, which we have a lot of, and he always took time to worship God. Uh, and he always took time to go and be with the people of God and to attend. And so here Jesus again, it's one of the feasts. We find him in attendance with the people of God assembled together. Imagine a swelled population. Verse 2 continues to tell us that there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda having five porches. So the scene now shifts or kind of zeroes in. It's almost as if, you know, we go from the telescopic view of Jerusalem swelled up. Now we come to the microscopic view of a particular location there at the pool of Bethesda, it says. Uh, and we're given a little bit of a description about this pool. It says, first of all, it was by the Sheep Gate, which tells us it would be in sort of the northern area of the temple area. We're told also that this particular pool had five porches or porticos. Those were sort of architectural uh, designed kind of covered uh, patios or porches, kind of colonnades that would be there. Uh, and interestingly enough, modern excavations, if you've ever gone to Israel or do a little research, have actually uncovered right in this specific area sort of two double pools exactly like what is described here in John chapter 5, just really confirming the validity all the more of what the Bible describes here of this particular pool that Jesus was at at this day when he did this miracle. The name of the pool is interesting. It's called the Pool of Bethesda. The word Bethesda actually means house of mercy. And how interesting and how fitting because it is there at the house of mercy at the Pool of Bethesda where Jesus is going to show incredible mercy an incredible grace in this man's life who was in a very needy situation, who was suffering and is unable to help himself. He needs the mercy of God in his life. He needs a work of the grace of God in his life. And that's exactly what he's going to experience as Jesus gives him a chance to have new life by the power of God. Verse 3 tells us that there at the pool of Bethesda lay a great multitude of sick people blind and lame and paralyzed waiting for the moving of the water for an angel went down at a certain time john says into the pool and stirred up the water and whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had so we kind of get this picture now at the pool of bethesda 
of all of who are gathered there, kind of what the scene looks like around this particular pool, as well as we're told a little bit of insight of why people are all assembled together. First of all, who's there? Well, verse 3 tells us pretty clearly there's a great multitude of people laying around with all types of needs, all types of issues and problems in their life. It says there was a great multitude there. Look at the list. It says, verse 3, who were sick, who were blind, who were lame, who were paralyzed. So you have multiple different types of people with all types of various stories, all types of backgrounds. One common thread is this. They all have problems. They all have issues. They all have things that they're struggling with, issues that are hindering their lives. There's a quite a variety there. That means you have people there with all types of different illnesses, various diseases, people who are laying around that pool with chronic and debilitating health conditions, physical disabilities of all different sorts, people who are paralyzed. It's a sea of struggling and suffering people whose lives are filled with pain and problems and a group of people as well, each one unable to resolve their unpleasant condition, unable to fix their own life problems. They're stuck in those conditions. We're also told here in these verses why that group was all gathered around or laying around this particular pool there. We're given this commentary. It says they're laying around. It says, verse 3, waiting for the moving of the water. So they're all laying around, if you would, waiting for some opportunity to stir up some opportunity to arise that maybe they could experience some change. John tells us parenthetically, I think it's a parenthetical statement in verse 4, that an angel went down at a certain time to that pool and stirred up the water, and then whoever stepped in first after the water was stirred was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, I'm going to say this this morning. My personal conviction, which you never, ever have to agree with, I believe what John is doing here is just simply recording what was the belief of that day among the people. I believe John is recording for us what the people in that day held as a belief, this story perhaps that had been told and was passed along and sort of hung on to where at one time this story was given that some angel had come down to this particular pool and that he had stirred up the waters and there was a group of people around and the first person that jumped in because they saw this supernatural event was healed and there was this thought conveyed that this was going to happen again or would happen again and you wanted to be there and be ready because you could get your miracle blessing from that pool now whether that actually happened at some point in time in the past I don't know. There are some unique and unusual miracles that did happen in the Bible. Uh, and it could be possible that maybe that took place. Uh, or it's also very likely that the story began and it was just circulated uh, and sort of became kind of a tradition or you know, a superstitious belief among the people in that day, which created no doubt a great amount of curiosity and optimism and people in desperation like the list described there in our verses certainly would be all the more prone, would you agree, to gravitate to this miracle pool if that's exactly what could happen there. When you're desperate, you become desperate. Uh, and, and you look for anything that might possibly help. And it appears, again, I think, that this was sort of a superstitious belief, a tradition held of this kind of miracle pool where people have gathered looking for their miracle blessing. 
that maybe next time they could get the miracle blessing for their life, hoping this angel would return and they could get in first this time. Now, I'll tell you why I don't believe this was something regularly, routinely happening, but just a belief that was held among the people is the reason is this. The whole scenario, when you look at it, it really contradicts the nature of God. It contradicts the way of God. I want you to think about this just briefly. First of all, it encourages a selfish me first attitude, does it not? <laughs> I mean, it completely endorses that it endorses a competitive me first attitude where people basically do what? They give no consideration to others and it's completely about I need to beat you and get the good stuff first. And not only that, if you look at it further, it even rewards a me first attitude. Whoever gets in first, me first, you get the blessing. So if you have a me first attitude, you don't consider others, God will reward you. That sounds kind of strange. It doesn't sound like the heart of God to me. Not to mention as well, it's somewhat cruel to me to have a group of hurting people live in a cycle of endless hopelessness and a false, vain expectation that maybe the miracle pool can fix my life somehow when I'm already struggling as it is. And not to mention, lastly, it doesn't really encourage seeking God for help. What does it encourage? Trust the miracle pool. It doesn't cause people to turn and to look to the Lord. So I don't think this was something that was routinely happening that God was doing. I think it was more of a superstitious belief that was developed, sadly kept people clinging to this vain hope and this hopeless cycle, and it was a belief which caused people to gravitate to that pool. Now, the scene, however, that's given to us in verses 1 through 4, certainly, of course, however, illustrates, I think, very beautifully, it illustrates the spiritual and moral condition of the multitudes of our world. I mean, just look at what's described there. First of all, many people in our world are sick and blind and paralyzed in their lives spiritually. Whether they admit it or not, or whether they realize it or not, people spiritually are sick and blind and paralyzed. The Bible teaches that people can be blind spiritually. They can have visual uh, capability physically. They can see things with their natural eyes, but spiritually they're so blinded to the truth and the realities of what God intends. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 regarding the person who's not yet saved, the person who's not yet following Jesus. They're not a Christian. It says this in 2 Corinthians 4, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing whose minds, listen, whose minds the God of this age, the devil, has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So the Bible says those who are in a condition of unbelief that will not believe yet in Jesus, won't accept the gospel for their life, those who are still in a condition where they are perishing and heading towards hell, they haven't yet met Christ yet, the Bible says the God of this age is able to then blind their minds. And perhaps you've experienced this before where you share the gospel with somebody as clear as a bell and, and you, you, you lay out the plan of God and no, 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 I don't think so. And, and, and you're thinking, are you kidding me? How can you not see what, what I'm trying to say here? And the reason is, the reality is, here's the truth. They can't see. They're blind. They're, they're, the God of this age has blinded their minds so they don't see correctly. They can't reason correctly because there's a spiritual blindness 
that's in them because of unbelief in their hearts. And the devil can manipulate that. And so we need to pray and intercede. Paul was told by Jesus in Acts 16 that his ministry was going to be this, to open eyes in order to turn them from the darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So people in the world are blind spiritually that don't know Jesus. The reality is, sometimes as believers, we as well need to be careful because if a Christian begins to get off track and enter back into maybe participating in the darkness, even after they come to the Lord, I'll tell you one thing I've seen and observed is that when a Christian goes back into the darkness, they begin to become visually impaired. And sin can have a similar effect where all of a sudden they become blinded by the effect of sin upon their life. And they kind of drive down the road with a windshield that's all fogged up because of sin if they've gone back into such. So we need to be careful as well. So certainly this pictures the blindness morally and spiritually of humanity. I think it also pictures as well as there are sick around how people can be spiritually sick with the disease and the effects of sin. Remember Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then he said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Jesus spoke of sin as sort of spiritual sickness. It's a terminal disease that every one of us in humanity have. It's killing everybody. It's the reason we're all going to die. And it will cause us to experience eternal death and damnation if we don't experience the cure, which is Jesus and the forgiveness of sins through his blood and his death and resurrection for us. So again, sin brings unhealthy lifestyles. It has an effect upon people. Sin, in a sense, like people who become sick because of bacteria or some disease in their life, sin brings unhealthy lifestyles. It brings deadly detrimental effects upon people's condition in this life. Sin produces all types of life issues symptomatically. It causes people to have personal problems and unpleasant symptoms in their life because of it. And it has a terminal effect upon every life eternally if it's not healed by Jesus Christ, if it's not helped by him. Thirdly, as well, take notice, it says in our scene here, there were also people who were paralyzed. And is it not true if we just step back and evaluate in the same way there are people physically paralyzed? There are people in this world, quite honestly, who are paralyzed in life conditions. Is it not true that there are people who are stuck in life-dominating habits? Life-dominating lifestyles that they are paralyzed and they just can't seem to get out of it. And it literally has paralyzed their life, whether it's substance abuse or just any life-dominating sin or habit that it completely brings a paralysis over someone's life and they're unable to change. They're unable to move forward. They stay paralyzed in that particular condition. Some people are paralyzed in life by fear or they're paralyzed by bitterness of something that happened that was painful or wrong, maybe legitimately so at some point in their life, but that thing has literally paralyzed them in their condition now. And they remain in this state of somewhat paralysis in their life and they never can move on. And they find themselves the perpetual victim. And they live like a victim the rest of their life. And again, I'm not diminishing painful, horrible things that happen. It's, it's tragic. But the reality is, is it's not the heart of God that we live like a victim 
paralyzed by what happens to us the rest of our lives. And I know a lot of people among the body of Christ who have gone through some pretty horrendous things, but by the power of God, they have not become a paralyzed victim. They have ultimately been able to look to God for his grace and say, I'm not going to just use this as an excuse to sit around on my mat the rest of my life and be paralyzed by this. Yes, it happened, but God can heal. God can help. I can overcome. I can move on and begin to keep walking forward with the Lord. And interesting in this scene here, most of the conditions that exist there literally what are all these people doing at this pool in verse 3 and 4? It says they're just sitting around, what, staring at some vain idea that they think somehow might potentially help someday. And isn't that what so many people in our world are doing that are blind and sick with life problems and issues and paralyzed? They're waiting for some special circumstance to arise which they think one day is going to bring the blessing that they're looking for. That's going to bring this thing that they're longing after. And they're falsely believing that something that they are looking to, whatever it is they're looking to, whatever pool they're staring into, they're falsely believing that someday it's going to provide some magical help. And they're vainly going through a cycle in life, hopelessly trusting in something that can never change the situation or circumstance. Well, among this multitude, we see now in verse 5, it appears there was one, and maybe, quite frankly, he was the neediest of them all. Maybe that's why he gets zeroed in on by God here in our story. Perhaps he was the most hopeless individual possibly that could ever change because look what it says verse 5 now a certain man was there among that crowd who had an infirmity for 38 years let me read that again he had an infirmity for 38 years i don't want you to just gloss over that but to really just consider the reality of what that's describing 38 Years, that's a long trial. I don't like a trial that lasts 38 hours. Much less do I like a trial that would last 38 days or 38 months. This guy had been dealing with this for 38 years. His condition... And all that caused the paralysis because we can see that he was in a paralyzed state. And that is all he has known for almost four decades. For almost four decades, clearly nothing and no one has ever been able to help. I can't help but to, to think to myself questions like, I mean, what kind of things had that guy suffered through as the result of that condition? What had he endured and suffered through physically and and just the, the symptoms of that condition having never departed him for four decades? I mean, what kind of thoughts had gone through that guy's mind over the past almost 40 years? What kind of negative thoughts? What kind of questions? What kind of confusion? What kind of emotions do you feel when you're stuck in something like that for 38 years? I mean, can you imagine the things that this man has gone through? I mean, this guy is the poster child for absolute hopelessness. He's the absolute poster child that nothing will ever change. And perhaps this morning, maybe not in the same exact way literally as this man, but in some measure, you can relate to this man. Because maybe perhaps in your life, some problem, some condition in your life 
has been going on for a really long time. And it's been a really long time that you've been struggling with that. It's been a really long time that you've been in the condition that you've been in and it hasn't changed. And it's been a really long time. And nothing and no one has ever been able to help or change it. Maybe you know people in the world that we should have compassion for who have been in a certain condition for a long time. And it's never changed in any way. Well, look what happens in verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew, look what it says, knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? So Jesus takes notice of this man's condition. It says he's fully aware how long he's been in it. And then shockingly, the Lord now inquires if this guy would like to be changed. First of all, take notice because Jesus is God, Jesus knows all things, and it says that Jesus looks at him and has full awareness of his life experience and all of his conditions. It says at the beginning of verse 6, Jesus saw him laying there. I imagine there was great compassion in the heart of the Lord. He knew that he had been in that condition for a long time. So in one look, Jesus knew everything about this man. He knew everything about him. He knew the whole story. He knew the whole backdrop. And he knew the whole 38-year period that he had been in that condition and all that he had thought and struggled through and wrestled with and was frustrated with and confused about and bothered by. Jesus knew all the struggle. He knew the entire story. Took one look into the depth of this man's soul and he compassionately understood how he'd been in that condition for a long time. And he also knew where this man was at in his heart at this point in time. Not just the condition itself, but he also knew where he was at in his heart in relation toward what his thoughts and feelings were towards God. And I'll tell you, this morning, Jesus knows and Jesus is fully aware of the condition of your life today. Maybe nobody else is. And maybe other people think they know the condition of your life. But the truth of the matter is maybe even the people who are the closest people to you, they still don't have the reality of the window inside of your soul of what has been going on in your life or what you've been struggling with for as long as you've been struggling with it. But Jesus does. Jesus is fully aware of exactly what's going on and he knows exactly how long it's been like this. Exactly how long it has been. And Jesus not only was aware, but look what Jesus then does. Here's where the story gets interesting in verse 6. He asks him then this question. He makes him an offer. He says, do you want to be made Well, so he asked the man if he wants to be cured of his problem. Now, we look at that. I don't know if others were listening. And at first glance, that question of Jesus, it almost seems a little odd to ask, doesn't it? Everybody knows that, you know, this guy is the guy with seniority at the Pool of Bethesda. He's been here for 38 years. 38 years. And Jesus goes up to a guy that's been like that for 38 years. And he says, we're just wondering, would you want to be made well? I mean, you just look at that and it almost sounds somewhat odd or maybe even perhaps almost sounds at first glance almost a bit offensive. Like, I mean, how could you ask a guy like that, something like that? Do you? I mean, that almost sounds like somewhat sarcastic. But of course, we know that's not the heart of the Lord. And Jesus never asks questions unless there's a purpose attached to it. 
And Jesus only asks a question if he wants to reveal things and help us to the greatest degree. So Jesus says, and I think here's the emphasis, don't miss it, the third word, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? Please hear me this morning. Give me your full attention. Jesus understands that there are actually some people who don't want to change. There are people, strange as it sounds, that would rather just remain as they are because it's what they know. And in some bizarre way, it actually becomes what they prefer. It actually becomes something where some people, strange as it seems, become comfortable living in an unhealthy condition. In an unhealthy condition, spiritually or morally, it's what they know. It's what's become familiar and sometimes they even find a level of enjoyment in it because sometimes there are perks to it. People give you special attention or so on or so forth and some people don't want to face the reality or the responsibility of change or of getting better and realizing there is a different way that could be lived. That is why the question really is not, do you think the Lord can change you? Do you think the Lord is able to make you well? But the question truly is, do you want to be made well? Do you really want to change? There's no question if Jesus has the power to do it. The question is, is a lot of times, do people really want change? Do you want to experience something different? Do you desire to be helped and healed from the condition you've been in for so long? Do you have a, a desire genuinely to live a different life? Do you want to live a different existence? Are you content to remain as you are? Do you prefer the condition you're in? Or do you really want to be different? Do you want to experience change? Jesus is extending this guy an offer to be made well and to have a changed life. And I think it's very interesting to consider the fact that Jesus asked that question, and I'm not saying it was this man's condition, but it is very interesting, we see in the next verse, that he just starts making excuses right away. Now, Jesus is still gracious to him, but it's just another indication, as I said, that this is just sadly, truly, I'm not saying it's everybody's circumstance or everybody's heart attitude, but some people, even if they don't even realize, they genuinely, they don't want to, they don't want to change. They don't want to be made well. And, and, and this is a very sad and unfortunate thing. And I think it's a very searching thing that we have to ask ourselves in all of our lives. So Jesus extends him an offer to be made well, to have a changed life. And he's trying to deal with, I think, the hard issue that he sees in this man who's become accustomed to being like this for all these years and to awaken out of him the apathy of how his life has been for so long. And to make him genuinely desire and long to want to be made well. To make him actually have this inclination, you know what? Yes, I am sick and tired of being like this. I want something different. I, I want to be open to the reality that there's a different existence. One commentator I read said this. I, I jotted it down. I quote, he said, The first essential towards receiving the power of Jesus is to have an intense desire for it. Jesus says, do you really want to be changed? If in our inmost hearts we are well content to stay as we are, then there can be no change for us. 
And I think Jesus is trying to stir in him by this question that do you really want it? Do you genuinely desire it? And maybe, I don't know, perhaps the Lord this morning out of this text, the main thing he would say to you is the same question. Maybe he is saying to you in your life, do you want to be made well? Do you want to change? Do you want to live a different existence? Because if so, Jesus is gracious and he has the power to provide that. But it begins with our longing for it. Well, look, Jesus asked the question, as I said, look what happens in verse 7. Jesus poses the question. It's a yes or no question, right? Do you want to be made well? What does the man do? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another always steps down before me. Do you see what happens there in verse 7? Take notice, he doesn't even answer the direct question that Jesus gave to him. Sounds like a politician, doesn't he? I'm sorry, it's political season. You can say that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, he just he doesn't even answer the question. He answers a completely different question. He answers, why haven't you gotten into the water yet? Jesus didn't ask, why haven't you gotten into the water yet? Jesus said, do you want to change? Yes or no? He instantly does what I would say pretty clear is he starts presenting what? Multiple excuses. Multiple excuses for why change is just not possible. I don't have the ability to do anything about this, he says. And, and, you know, it's ruled my life for years and nobody around here is ever willing to help me. I've never been given a chance and everybody else around this pool is so selfish. Whenever I try and roll myself down there in my paralysis, some jerk jumps in before me. And the point of the man's contention is what? The fault is with everybody else. But there's no personal responsibility here. And he basically has this attitude in the mindset. You see... If it wasn't for this person, I wouldn't be like this. I know we've never said that before. If it wasn't for this situation, or if it wasn't for this circumstance, if it wasn't for these people, or this job, or my upbringing, or my experience, if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be like this. I wouldn't be like this. But see, that's the answer of a victim mentality. And again, I'm not diminishing the pain and the suffering that goes along with things that happen to us, unfortunate, you know, horrible. But the reality is that's excuse making. And if we become good at making excuses in life, we will never, ever be good for anything else. Anything else. And so he begins to make these justifications. I mean, it sounds very familiar how we at times, all of us, don't we? We ignore the root issue at hand in a situation and we often make excuses as kind of a smoke screen when we don't want to face the reality of what God's trying to address in our lives. So we begin to make excuses and throw out different things to escape confronting reality in our own lives. But see, that's never good. And that's why Jesus doesn't even entertain it. Look at verse 8. <laughs> Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now that's very gracious. Jesus doesn't even he doesn't give him a hard time about his excuses. He just, in a sense, doesn't even entertain the excuses presented. He lets him blow off his excuses, but he doesn't entertain him. And he basically gives to this man, Jesus does, does he not, an impossible command. He gives him an impossible command. This is a man who has been paralyzed for 38 years. And Jesus says to him, rise, stand up right now, Pick up your old mat that you've been laying on and start 
to walk. Some, again, might wonder, how could Jesus give somebody like that such a bold and impossible command? He's crippled. He's a pitiful man. Remember, as I said, Jesus has no intentions of humiliating this guy. Jesus isn't toying with his emotions if somehow he's you know, not going to follow through if the guy tries to stand up and let him fall on his face. He's not looking to humiliate him or embarrass him. He wants to help him to the fullest extent. And Jesus knows, what we often forget, that with the power of God, nothing is impossible. Yes, it was an impossible command, but Jesus knows with the power of God attached to something, anything then becomes possible. In Mark 9, 23, Jesus said, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. It then tells us in Mark chapter 10 that Jesus says, With men this is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. So Jesus calls him to respond and to receive the power of God to basically, number one, end an old way of life, and number two, to begin a brand new way of life, to be miraculously changed, to be transformed, to be helped and healed. What a beautiful picture of what Jesus desires for all people's lives in much the same way. The Bible tells us Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let us never forget, Jesus hasn't changed, which means his heart and his compassion and his concern and his power has not changed either. So when it comes to someone, at times, I fully believe, there are times in our lives, I believe, when Jesus comes, and that's your day, and he comes to someone and he sees the situation and knows everything about all the background, the problems. He knows the whole backstory. He knows all the baggage and the backdrop and how it happened and why it happened. And, and, and then there comes that unique hour, that moment where Jesus comes to an individual and he singles them out and he offers them to do a powerful work of his grace in their life to change them. Listen, I tell you this, I know this because I was the paralyzed man. And I had nothing to bring to the table, no ability to change myself, no way of becoming a different individual. But all I know is one day Jesus showed up in my life and he said, look, I don't need to hear the excuses. I don't need to know the backdrop. What I'm telling you is if you want to get up and stop living this way, I got a new way for you can live. And if you respond and receive the power of God available in this hour... You'll change. And it worked. It worked. And Jesus has not changed and he offers these situations. Again, as I said, it may not be a physical problem. Maybe it's just some deep-rooted life issue that paralyzes a person for a long time. Maybe it's not physical paralysis, but Jesus sees if it's just a deep-rooted life issue that paralyzes a person and he wants to liberate us. Sometimes Jesus says to people, look, I want you to get up. I want you to rise up out of the condition that you have lived in for so long and take a new stand for once. I want you to pick up your mat, to take up your bed. It was like a sleeping mat. What's he saying? I want you to fold up and I want you to put an end to that old way of existence. Pack it up. Pick it up. Put an end to that old way of living and then he says, and walk, get moving forward. Start taking steps, he's saying, of progress. Pursue a new path and a new way of life. Again, I understand human reasoning. It almost sounds impossible logically from our perspective. 
that's the problem is we, we want to reason things out logically. God's not always logical. <laughs> He's not always logical. He's a miracle working God. And there can be years of baggage or bondage, but if Jesus is calling us to receive, we must believe and respond. And the calling of the Lord is always the enabling of the Lord. And I say that for this reason. Because I believe there are times when there are, in a sense, just as I said, sort of these supernatural doorways that come open in our lives where the power of God and the presence of God is available for us to step through a supernatural doorway for something in our life, whatever it may be. The question is this, when the doorway is there, what are we going to do with it? Are we going to step through it and experience what the Lord has or are we going to hesitate and begin to hedge and then the doorway passes and life goes on? And we miss opportunities to experience the goodness and the work of God's grace in our lives in incredible ways. So verse 9 tells us, immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. So the Bible records this miracle of Jesus took place because the man believed and responded to what? The word of the Lord. He just responded to the word of the Lord. He didn't change himself. He didn't help himself. He just took God at his word. He took Jesus at his word. Apparently, he hears the invitation. He trusts it can happen. He senses the power of God and he acts responsibly upon the word of the Lord. And all of a sudden, joints and muscles and ligaments and things that have been dead and non-functional for years spring back to life. And all of a sudden, a supernatural power of God goes through his life. And this man, it says, look, wasn't therapy. Immediately, he's made well. He takes up his bed and he starts walking. And a miracle of God happens. Well, look what takes place. Verse 9 goes on to say, And that day was the Sabbath. And the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your Bed. Now, because it was the Sabbath day, instead, notice, of rejoicing in the miracle, which we would expect would happen, the Orthodox religious leaders, they do what? They get offended by this guy's actions. Again, the Sabbath day for the Jews, remember, was the day when they were instructed to cease from labor and work to rest and focus on the Lord. Unfortunately, over the years of history, the Orthodox Jews in that day of Jesus became extremely legalistic and fanatical in their interpretation of what that really meant to rest or to not bear a burden and what actually counted as work or labor. And there were all kinds of meticulous rules and regulations they developed, what it meant to not bear a burden, what actually qualified as a burden. As I've told you before, you, know, you can read writings that say that you, know, you couldn't wear your false teeth on the Sabbath because that was to bear a burden. You know, if you had a wooden leg, you couldn't use it on the Sabbath. That was to bear a burden. You know, women couldn't wear eyelashes because that was to bear a burden or whatever. You know, you couldn't spit because if you spit and it hit the dirt and it rolled a little bit, that was considered plowing. So now you've worked. You plowed some dirt on the Sabbath. And they had all these ridiculous, minuscule rules. And the religious leaders became really like a religious police force just looking for people to violate things to the slightest degree. And that was all they were interested. You can tell here, on a day when you would think, here's this guy, 38 years, everybody knows poor old Simeon. He's been laying there for 38 years in that condition. You would think on this day when he's finally healed miraculously, he's walking around, there would be universal joy 
and thanksgiving. But instead, what goes on? They get upset. They find this man, it tells us here, verse 10, they reprimand him instead who had just been cured and say, don't you realize it's the Sabbath? It's not lawful for you to be carrying around your bed mat. What are you doing? You're violating the Sabbath. Now, I look at this, and here's what comes to my mind. Is it not absurd? Is it not absurd how people can sometimes overlook incredibly good things that have transpired and instead are bothered by the tiniest issues and are distracted by some of the most non-essential things? But I'll tell you this, I've seen this many times, and a lot of times I see it in connection to people who Jesus' life has been changed by. I've seen this so many times. Here, this person, they have this wonderful life change. Jesus comes into their life. They end some old habits. They become a new person. All of a sudden now, they're this new person. And instead of those who know that person who's been changed by Jesus, being happy and rejoicing. Wow, you're a, new, you're a different person now. You're a changed individual. Instead, what do they do? They find petty reasons to be upset about Jesus in their life. Oh, yeah. He always wants to read his Bible now. Oh, man. I mean, and all he ever wants to talk about is the Lord. He doesn't cuss anymore. He doesn't yell at me anymore. And, he, I mean, and you know, two days a week he wants to go to church now. Not just Sunday. He wants to go on Wednesday night too. Was that cold over there or something? What are they doing over there? And, and instead of being, wow... Praise the Lord, this is a different person now. They're, instead, they find some ridiculous, petty reason to be upset. And, I mean, the, the insanity of humanity, right? <laughs> Let's move on before I get in more trouble. Verse, verse 11 says this. He answered them and said, He who said to me, take up my bed and walk, he said, and they asked him, Who's this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But it says, The man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. So they, again, they accost him. Who, what are you doing carrying your mat? He says, look, look, I'm just doing what the guy you healed me told me to do. I mean, I, I, he told me to take up my bed and walk. I did it. I'm healed. The power of God happened. Who told you to do that? We're going to go after him. And, and apparently Jesus had ministered to him powerfully and just graciously slipped away silently after a gracious work of God. Jesus wasn't looking for attention or applause. He just wanted to help the man. He just wanted to heal him. So he graciously ministers. He quietly slips away. And he says, I don't even know who the guy's name was. But look at verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him interesting in the temple. That's beautiful. Because I want you to see there, where does this man go directly after he experiences a miracle of God? There are a lot of places he could have gone. He could have said, man, new legs. I can walk. I, I can't wait to go see this person and go visit that person. I can't wait to go get a good falafel. I can't wait to go run a few laps. I mean, I got my legs back again. Wow. Where does he go? He goes to the temple. Because the first thing that is his chief concern is I want to express my gratitude to God. I want to express my appreciation. So he goes to the temple of God and Jesus finds him, it says, verse 14, there in the temple and says to him, see, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now, I think there are two reasons or possibilities, let me better say, why Jesus might have said to him what he did there. See, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Perhaps it's indicating that Jesus is aware 
that the original cause of this man's 38 years suffering and paralysis was a direct consequence, maybe to some sinful behavior or practice, that had triggered this as a consequence. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes, would you agree, there are certain forms of sin that bring destructive effects in people's lives that cause damaging consequences to a life. And maybe he had suffered in that condition for all those years because of his own sin in some way. And Jesus here is therefore giving him a loving warning saying, look, you've been made well now. Sin no more. Lest something worse come upon you. Now, if that was the reason Jesus said that, let me say this. What an incredible demonstration of the grace of God. If that was the reason he was in that condition for 38 years, I want you to see this. Jesus did not harshly look at this man and say, well, you made your bed, lay in it for the next 20 years until you die because you brought it on yourself. What does Jesus do? Jesus is the exact opposite. Jesus says, I realize you've been suffering for a long time, but I want to help you get better. I want to help you get better. I don't want you to, you've suffered long enough. I want to help you get better and experience something new. It could be, however, that this wasn't a result of the man's sin, that maybe the condition he's experiencing is not connected to any prior sin. Maybe Jesus is saying that because he's just trying to indicate the greater danger of sin's eternal consequence. Maybe what Jesus means is, look, you've been made well, sin no more, lest a worse thing, eternal damnation, come upon you. It could be that Jesus is saying to him, I've shown you mercy and made you free. Therefore, now it's time out of gratitude to God to serve the Lord and to repent of a life of sin, lest something much worse come upon you than just 38 years of physical suffering on this earth. See, Jesus wants us all to understand that those who continue in sin and reject him as Savior will suffer something much worse than just temporal suffering on this earth if they never come to him for his salvation. They'll encounter the eternal consequence of dwelling forever in hell where there's unending suffering. And the reality is Jesus saying, if you don't get right with God, you're going to experience something much worse than this. Someday something much worse is going to come upon you and 38 years on this earth of suffering is going to seem like a cakewalk compared to eternal torment in hell. Life's problems can be really hard to deal with this on this earth. I, I realize that. But let's always remember this. There is something much worse that could come upon us. Something much worse. Look, if you're struggling in this life this morning and dealing with some things, sometimes our greatest struggles in this life are the things that lead us to encounter Jesus and to really experience and meet the Lord and to continue to receive from the Lord as the result of struggles. And always remember, Christian, there's something much worse that could have come upon you. And if you're here this morning and you have never embraced Jesus Christ for salvation, sometimes the Lord will graciously intervene into our lives in such a way to get our attention to speak to our soul and to say, listen, listen, there's something much worse at stake here. Perhaps it's time now, while there's still time, to get up, to live a different life and to serve me and to follow me, lest something worse come upon you eternally. Let's stand together. Let's pray.